Good morning. Now, officially, uh, uh, welcome to this uh, session uh, of the WTO Public Forum 2023. Uh, this session has a very provocative and interesting title, uh, Kicking Away the Ladder of Building New Scaffolding, Green Trade Measures Under Development Implications, a focus on the textiles and clothing global value chain. Uh, my name is uh, Max Mendez Parra. I am Principal Research Fellow at ODI, and I have the privilege to be chairing this session. Um, I hope that we will have a very useful and fruitful uh, uh, discussion. Uh, clearly, we are seeing uh, uh, the the appearance of a series of measures to address the climate emergency. Uh, we are very familiar with the with bans and also the deforestation directive of the EU, but also other countries are in the process of establishing, we are considering establishing similar measures. Uh, these sectoral measures, I mean, applying to agriculture, applying to industry, are also, also starting to be considered for the textiles and clothing uh, uh, sector. Um, the relevance of this sector in terms of development, in terms of industrialization, is critical. It has always been the textile sector, the sort of first step of that ladder of uh, industrial development for uh, uh, many countries. And clearly, the, the, the appearance of these measures puts a sort of question mark or sort of a potential challenge of this uh, 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 sector, basically the, 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 the textiles and clothing sector, have actually been uh, that initial step for, for many development processes. So uh, uh, unless we uh, uh, don't consider these implications in, 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 the, the, in the designing of these measures, we are clearly going to lose that potential uh, 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 effect of this the sector. Uh, the panel will explore how potentially bring together the environmental, the climate, the economic, and the social uh, uh, considerations in the upgrading within textiles and clothing value chain. Uh, and we will try, we know they probably the panelists, will try to uh, uh, answer uh, some pertinent questions to, to this. Uh, particularly what forces are shaping the, the development of an inclusive textiles and clothing uh, uh, value chain at the national level, but also internationally. Uh, they will also explain how these green trade measures are uh, influencing the organization of textiles value chains uh, uh, and what would be the effects on the smaller producers um, subcontractors that are quite critical in, in this value chain, um, and what measures can be adopted, uh, not only in terms of policy, but also we're also thinking about potential on the private sector to ensure a more inclusive uh, approach towards greening trade in the, in, the, in the different stages of the textiles and clothing value chain. So this is a quite an ambitious agenda, but I think we have the right people uh, uh, to, to tackle the task. 
I'm going to introduce the, the, the panelists on my uh, uh, left. Uh, we have Dr. Famida Katum. She is the executive director of the Center for Policy Dialogue in, in Bangladesh. Uh, we have also next to, to her, we have uh, Mr. David Beer. He is the chief executive of Trademark uh, Africa, a uh, Formally, uh, should we say formally? Continue saying formally. Trademark is Africa, or shall we say we, we moved on. Now. We moved. Yeah. Okay, yeah. trademark Africa now. Uh, next to him is Mr. George Riedel, who is the director of trade strategy of uh, EY. And to my right is uh, Dr. Jody King, my colleague at ODI, a senior research fellow at ODI. Uh, there will be opportunity for questions uh, uh, at the end, and I will definitely encourage you to, to, to make, put your questions and, and, your, uh, and enrich the discussion. You can also uh, be uh, uh, encouraged to participate in Twitter. Oh, no. Now X, formerly Twitter, <laughs> uh, using the, the at ODI underscore trade and the hash uh, WTO public forum. I think that is the, the call. So I will give each of the uh, speakers uh, uh, seven minutes, uh, and I will tell them at five-minute uh, mark. Uh, uh, so the guide, I think we have an initial presentation and follow-up on another presentation. And then... Uh, I will uh, uh, make a question to the four speakers, and then I will open in for, for the floor. So I will move to the first speaker, that would be uh, Jody. Uh, Jody, you have been looking to, at these issues from the global value chains perspective, uh, and you have been trying to understand the interactions between international poly measures, I mean, like, like we are discussing, uh, and how these effects are being transmitted to the domestic policy frameworks, how they, these have been affected. Uh, your analysis has been looking into three countries, uh, Vietnam, Kenya, and Bangladesh as, as case studies. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, uh, how more inclusive approaches can, approaches can be adopted to, 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 to this aspect. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Max, for that. And good morning, everyone. Really delighted you can all join us um, with this early start. Um, so as Max mentioned, we've been undertaking some work which has been trying to look at this nexus of you know, how to achieve social, environmental, and economic upgrading in tandem. And it's very difficult to generalize, actually, across the, the three country case studies that we have um, looked at. Um, but I will try and do my best for you this morning. So just briefly, I'm going to give an overview of just how important the textiles and clothing industry is, why this value chain is so special, and why it's considered really you know, this first rung, this first step up on this ladder of industrialization. And then I'm going to move on to look at the environmental footprint of the industry which is really pretty large. It's surprisingly large. And then I'll wrap up and draw together some of the findings that we found through our case study uh, analysis. So as you know, the title of this session is Kicking Away the Ladder. So I think it is important that we reflect on what is really meant by that term. It's you know, quite a famous quote now from the book by Harjun Chang. And in it, he makes reference to one of the 
a very ancient kind of English king um, who is believed to have been one of the first to introduce specific measures to develop the local wool and cloth industry. He only wore English cloth, for example, and he brought in Flemish weavers, centralised trade in raw wool and banned the import of woolen cloth. So it's just to give you, you know, just a bit of historical context, like this sector is really, really important, tends to have kind of low barriers to entry. It's able to absorb a lot of low-skilled labour pretty quickly, um, and so it's really, really important. So many of those measures that were used, you know, those hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they all sound very much like strategic trade policy. And indeed, that's Hardyun Chang's argument is that many of these measures were used by now industrialized nations and they were subsequently used by the newly industrialized nations such as Japan, Korea and Taiwan. And because the industry developed behind that kind of protective barrier of policy before a free trade ethos was adopted, it's for that reason the German uh, 19th century economist used that phrase kicking away the ladder because he argued that you know once countries have reached that level they are then able to preach the mantra of free trade because they are not then afraid of competition coming from elsewhere and so just to kind of you know bring that historical perspective because of course the concerns of many developing countries are that new green trade measures are a new form of of protectionism and that they may be um, kicking away the ladder so we're here to debate you know is this are these kicking away the ladder or are we trying to create something new here that tries to bring together this nexus so the expansion of the sector the you know expansion of global value chains it really has been you know highly regulated the textiles and clothing sector is extremely sensitive even nowadays and um, so it's been highly regulated and although this sector but although this sector has been highly regulated in that economic sense so it's effectively beginning with a system of kind of rent creation um, civil society has been very vocal that although you know, the focus has been on that kind of economic upgrading, there hasn't been much attention paid to social upgrading, social issues initially, and now more recently, um, environmental issues. So because of that, there's been termed, use this phrase, kind of governance deficits in relation to thinking about social upgrading and environmental upgrading. And of course, there's quite a long history in terms of thinking about social issues. There's a long history of programs like the ILO, Better Factories, program and so on and I know my colleagues will touch on some of these issues as well but it's only recently that the concerns about environmental upgrading have really come uh, to the forefront so <clears throat> we have a number of new green trade measures that are in place now but are also coming in uh, coming on stream in in the future and of course these are all motivated by the level of ambition that is included in the Paris agreement um, so the big players, you know, the big end markets are starting to take serious action to address the challenge and to influence their supply chains and suppliers. So essentially, you know, these new measures are seeking to go beyond the kind of mutual assurances between countries, you know, that they will adhere to sustainable development, which, of course, you know, is, is um, within the preamble of the, the Marrakesh Agreement, it's seeking to go beyond those mutual assurances to really ensure the due diligence of firms operating within their market with a kind of extraterritorial um, application. So this is what we can see 
um, in the um, forthcoming corporate sustainability due diligence directive from the EU. Um, It's still in the Troika process, but it's expected to come into force this year, and then there's a couple of years um, before it gets implemented. But we can also see it within the EU textile strategy as well, and that has had um, kind of ripple effects across um, supply chains. So if we think about these measures that are being implemented, it's within the context of the fact that the environmental footprint of the industry is really pretty large. It's surprisingly large. And of course, there are different estimates as just to how big the sector is in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. But if we look across the whole value chain and take a life cycle analysis, it's been estimated that the sector accounts for around 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's taking into account account the kind of emissions used in production, but as well as transportation as well. So it's really pretty big. Um, And that, that share of the global carbon budget is going to increase unless actions are taken, which is why these actions are being taken. So essentially what we're looking at are kind of almost new forms of of, of value chain um, governance um, which is putting the obligation on on firms and there will be sanctions that are applied to that that applied to firms as well so it's kind of moving beyond those kind of country level um, mutual assurances so what we've seen within our case studies that we looked at we looked at Bangladesh Kenya and Vietnam and of course they're all positioned very differently within the value, global value chain textiles and global value chain very different starting position positions very different kind of you know nature of firm level interactions and how public policy frameworks have shaped those but i think you know although it's very difficult to generalize i think what we've what we've concluded is that overall there's no kind of market led path to environmental or social upgrading we found that public policy frameworks frameworks are really key because the economic upgrading process is not sufficient to induce you know social and economic upgrading there needs to be you know kind of public policy frameworks in place and these frameworks have, imp- have become in- come in place through different forces so if you think about the kind of forces that have led to um increased um focus on labor standards and so on the role of civil society compared to this new focus on environmental upgrading there are different processes there but you know it's really about having the kind of domestic public policy frameworks in place in the producer countries and those frameworks have also got to have teeth so where we are at the moment when we look at vietnam when we look at bangladesh and and, um, kenya we can see there are different measures that are being introduced and have been introduced in recent years to you know, kind of adapt to what is coming downstream from the big end markets. Um, But nonetheless, you know, there are still very valid concerns about the risks of exclusion if there aren't accompanying support measures. And I think in countries like Vietnam, you know, there's been a very strong role that have been played by business associations in country. That's also the case in Bangladesh, um, but perhaps a lesser um, extent in, in the case of Kenya. So I think these, you know, what we've seen so far, it raises important questions about the future role of of aid for trade, you know, when thinking about the impact of green trade measures. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jody, for setting the the context and specifically on these three countries. How are they, uh, uh, these countries, I mean, how these measures have been affecting the, 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 the policies of these countries, uh, as well as basically how the new uh, corporate governance actually has been affected by, by this measure. So, uh, uh, my next uh, uh, speaker, our next speaker, Dr. Famida Khatoum, I mean, 
she's coming from Bangladesh, and I and I don't need actually to to tell basically how important is. Uh, uh, the textiles and clothing sector for Bangladesh, and how important actually is Bangladesh for the whole textile clothing sector worldwide? Actually, I think I must be wearing something that is Bangladesh for sure. Uh, and clearly, Bangladesh has faced challenges in the past. I mean, the, the, the Rana Plaza uh, uh, catastrophe uh, has demanded uh, companies in Bangladesh, producers actually, to uh, take action to, to uh, uh, making significant changes in the industry. So, so I wonder now is how these new measures uh, are being, uh, that buyers, I mean, in, in, in Europe or in the U.S. are, 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 are requesting, how are they being uh, uh, affecting the industry? How is Bangladesh adapting to this? Uh, uh, requirements. Thank you. I think um, thank you, Max. Uh, good morning to everyone. So I would uh, just present uh, a few findings of the study we have been doing and also contextualize some of the issues you have just mentioned. Um, of course, you know, since uh, Rana Plaza has happened, there has been a lot of improvement in terms of, uh, you know, factory safety and improving the building requirements and many other, you know, compliance issues, including the labor issues. And uh, following Rana Plaza, there was this tripartite initiative um, which involved the government, the um, alliance, which is the North American Buyers uh, Coalition, and then Accord, which is the European Buyers uh, you know, Coalition, they all put together their time and effort and investment to improve the factory compliances. And since then, it has improved significantly. Of course, I mean, there is a lot to do. It's an ongoing process. It's a working progress. So, uh, and Bangladesh has been in the forefront in terms of uh, meeting uh, not only the compliances which are, yeah, so, um, which are required with regard to labor issues or building, say, building uh, compliances, fire safety, but nowadays uh, it's also uh, looking into the requirements on environmental aspects because, as Jody has made um, in her presentation, that this is a new requirement because when you talk about in sustainability, it is a combination of economic, social, and, and environmental sustainability. So I'll come to that and I'll give you some, you know, some evidences how uh, the sector is um, moving ahead. But just to you know, contextualize also that how important the sector is to the economy of Bangladesh. In fact, this is one of the important backbones of Bangladesh's economy because as you can see that it is a source of employment and foreign exchange. And um, almost you know, over 80% um, it, from year to year it varies, but in the fiscal year 2022 Three, the contribution of this um, ready-made garments and textile sector to the foreign exchange was uh, over 87%, which is equivalent to 11.7% of the GDP. And the sector employs 4.5 million people, and over 50%, 57.2% are um, women. Of course, you know, it was uh, higher over the time, it has declined for many reasons, technology access to technology 
technology ad or adopting to ad technology is one of the factors, but uh, that's a different um, discussion. But uh, what I want to say that this has been a very crucial sector for the economic uh, performance and economic outcome of Bangladesh economy. Now, it has, as I have mentioned, it, it has taken various um, you know, measures. Now, in terms of the new requirement that is green transitioning um, in the sector, the Bangladeshi um, factories, Bangladeshi manufacturers have been in the forefront because um, there are you know, this requirement, this lead, which is the leadership in energy and environmental design, um, over 180 factories so far has uh, have been certified. They have obtained this certification by meeting the compliance requirement, and another 500 factories are in the pipeline which are going to receive um, and obtain this uh, LEED certification, which is an indication that how seriously. And then there, many of them have started a couple of years back voluntarily. Now this is coming as a mandatory, and it will be more so because Bangladesh is going to graduate in 2026, and following the graduation, the compliance will be much more stringent. It is not only about labor issues or uh, human rights, but it is going to be also on environmental aspects. And since, as you know, that Bangladesh is one of the important factors of Bangladesh's you know, um, uh, expansion in the global market is also uh, domestic and global policies. The, uh, domestically, the government has provided many incentives and facilities, and also globally, many you know, the trade regime itself had facilitated, for example, multi-fiber arrangement, and also the European Union's um, this uh, duty-free quota fee market access, and under the you know um, UEBA, everything but arms facility, Bangladeshi products, ready-made garments products get duty-free quota fee market access. So that has really um, facilitated. So once we graduate, uh, Bangladeshi you know, factories, they have to comply with, comply with all sorts of requirements, including the greening of this. So how they are doing it, um, because there are uh, factories, I mean, there are over uh, 5,500 um, 5, factories, almost close to 6,000 factories, including textile and RMG, but the sizes vary. Uh, and their cap capability to adopt or invest in greening is also, you know, um, uh, that also varies. So this is, a, this is a survey, the just initial findings of a survey which we had completed. The study, the report is yet to come out. Um, next month it is going to come out. I just brought out some uh, findings to show that uh, the factories which are adopting, which have in invested, how it varies. Obviously, the larger factories are well ahead of the medium and small factories and micro factories. They all have, uh, you know, they have orientation towards uh, greening the factories. So uh, the larger factories are way above in terms of, you know, like environmental sustainability issues in their policies, whether they have a you know, dedicated person, sustainability uh, officer or the manager and all these things. So, uh, but, you know, this large factories are not the only factories and also the other factories which are not many of them, the micro ones are not directly integrated with the uh, export 
um, market, but they are the suppliers to um, the larger factories in many cases. So that's important that they also have the capability uh, to invest. The, uh, the next one is also I wanted to show the variation of the investment. Um, during the last five years, how much on average they have invested on greening. So um, if you look at the large factories, it is about um, – 37% of their total investment, which has gone uh, for greening, that is, you know, energy efficiency, water efficiency, waste management, and all these. The small and medium factories, they have also made some investment, and uh, uh, of their total uh, investment, it is about 45% because the, their total investment is small, so a large part is um, going to the greening part. Um, and then micro factories, again, you know, out of their total investment, it's for 54%. So um, though in, in value terms, it is a huge difference, but in percentage of their own investment, it is a big investment for them. So that brings us to the, you know, this is the last slide, but I just wanted to uh, mention a few things, the challenges, how they are facing. That in the, the survey also shows that the understanding of greening varies across the factories because the awareness regarding greening, that what does it you know, include, what does it really you know, mean for that, there is um, you know, differences in awareness. The other issue is most important is um, particularly for the smaller ones, that the access to finance and technology. So larger ones, they can internalize the investment they make, uh, but for the smaller ones, finance has been a big issue, and that is the biggest bottlenecks. In fact, the, for the larger ones also, the challenge and the complaint also they raise that they have made so much of investment, but they are not getting the premium price. So from the buyer side, that is also um, you know, a responsibility to, uh, to make you know, to support them uh, by providing maybe you know flexible uh, finances and all and also in increasing the prices of the products so that's um, these are the challenges and also the other regulatory uh, measures and then financial measures within the government that's another part but uh, so these are three four challenges which are uh, being felt by then and which the sector has been dealing with, and in the coming days, these have to be addressed by, you know, not by only uh, the uh, owners themselves, but it is a, uh, it has to be a coordinated approach uh, with the participation of all stakeholders. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Famida, for presenting this picture of Bangladesh, where basically the message I'm getting is clearly Bangladesh is sort of taking action, but clearly there is a lot of heterogeneity and, and the, the figures presented suggested that clearly is, is a, you need to have a more tailored approach actually, particularly to dealing with the different companies. I'm going to change now geography, uh, uh, but it's not just a change in map, actually a change also in, in terms of the uh, uh, focus uh, to, to Africa, uh, to, to David. And clearly, Africa, uh, uh, in general, has seen and has been trying to uh, uh, be inserted into the global value chains of, of textiles and clothing, uh, um, and it faces its unique challenges. 
uh, of course, I mean, it hasn't been such, as successful probably as, as Bangladesh yet, but uh, clearly there is a clear uh, a political driven towards that, and we see that within the, the ASCFTA, where clearly the textiles and clothing is one of the value chains that has been uh, uh, targeted by, the, by, the, by the, the, the African Union, actually, to develop uh, uh, as part of the ASCFTA. So, David, can, can you provide some, some reflections on, on, on how the continent in general is sort of adapting to this uh, uh, international uh, uh, environmental pressures, uh, uh, and how is that the uh, that is fits within the the the, the AFCFTA strategy to develop the the, the, the value chain? David, thank you so much, Max. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. The um, uh, how a how a really mature uh, a textile section in Bangladesh is is addressing some of these challenges. I think firstly, I would say the. Um, there are clearly major opportunities for uh, for Africa and, and particular for particular countries um, uh, that I'll talk about in terms of the uh, the CTG sector, and that's in I, for me that's for in three ways. The first is in terms of preferences. Uh, we're seeing a move uh, uh, in particular from fast fashion to sustainable fashion, with an emphasis on on shortening uh, supply chains. I think that plays very much into. Uh, uh, into the favour of uh, uh, of many African countries, um, we're also seeing uh, a range of um, uh, uh, of regulations and requirements come down. Not least uh, CS Triple D from uh, from the EU, the Corporate Sustainability Directive, uh, which focuses very much on on human rights as well as environmental and social concerns. Uh, and in that sense, uh, uh, we, we're seeing opportunities for uh, um, for shifting some manufacturing to uh, to the continent. Um, secondly, in terms of competitiveness, you know, as countries uh, as countries develop as they uh, um, uh, as, as they move up the uh, um, the the income scale, then wages are going to go up, and uh, and there's an opportunity to come in uh, to come in lower down and, and provide a more competitive product. Although I think uh, we we do need to recognise the challenge of productivity relative to uh, some of the more established players. And the third is around concessions. Um, so obviously the uh, the EU's um, everything but arms initiative um, is is uh, uh, is powerful, um, but also uh, AGOA. We're seeing uh, 26 countries in Africa now uh, have the opportunity to uh, uh, to trade finished uh, finished uh, textile uh, products, uh, quota free and duty free, into the US. And in fact, that's that's where we're seeing much of the growth happening at the moment. Um, there are a few countries that are really taking advantage, and in particular Kenya and Ethiopia. We're seeing now CTG exports are hitting uh, hitting a billion dollars, almost half of which are, are coming from Kenya. Um, I know the numbers are, are nowhere near Bangladesh's, but uh, you know we're we're seeing 100 companies in the in the garment manufacturing space, um, 100,000 employees, and and over a million farmers engaged in in cotton at, at upstream in in that uh, uh, in that value chain. Uh, most of these uh, 80, 80, 90 percent are women. So there is, uh, there, <clears throat> there are countries and there are um, there are businesses that are that are taking advantage quite aggressively, which uh, um, uh, which we find very encouraging. Obviously, um, there are real challenges and hurdles as well. Um, so, in particular, sourcing from the region, um, although uh, uh, finished garments uh, export, particularly into the U.S., is a <coughs> is a success story. 
um, there's a there's a very low sourcing of textiles for those garments from the region. So less than one percent of the value of CTG exports from EAC Plus was traded intra-regionally in the last few years. Um, that's partly due to the the absence of this middle segment, um, and especially the, uh, the, the that that spinning and milling segment. Um, which means that uh, uh, that we don't have the vertically integrated value chains yet um, that will really add the value um, and drive uh, drive efficiencies. Now we're talking um, we're talking about uh, um, uh, how we can green the sector and some of the opportunities and challenges there. Um, we see there are real competitive advantages uh, for uh, countries in Africa around the uh, the green trade agenda and some of the. Um, uh, some of the the, uh, the requirements that are being imposed. In particular, for example, Kenya has 80-85% uh, of its energy mix um, from renewables, mainly geothermal and wind. Um, that, uh, that is an opportunity to really position it in, uh, um, uh, in a very positive sense. Also, for example, the limited use of agrochemicals in Uganda, Tanzania, um, uh, cotton per hectare is is only using up five and eight uh, uh, kilos of MPKs, um, respectively. Whereas you look at uh, Brazil and China, and you're in the 400s, 500s for, um, per uh, um, per hectare. And then lastly, traceability. Um, there's uh, the the interest in sustainable fashion um, uh, with uh, with poverty reduction elements and the uh, and uh, and the social conscience that is coming through. I think is is particularly relevant for uh, um, uh, for the continent, but only if we can generate this uh, um, the advances on vertical integration. <coughs> uh, Jody, you mentioned that 10% uh, of emissions um, uh, of global emissions come from the sector. I think uh, you know a lot of this is from, from some of the energy intensive processes um, uh, upstream in the value chain. Um, we uh, and for me, you, you're talking about the the, the substantial investments from companies in Bangladesh. I think where we are, uh, certainly where we see with some of our client countries in Africa, um, the, the capital and the scale is not there to make those investments yet. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think this, this is a very important point that, uh, um, that as many of these regulations come down the track, we need a commensurate uh, investment, public investment in enabling companies and enabling uh, um, governments to adapt um, uh, in order to uh, to thrive, and that's certainly what uh, what Trademark is doing with the support of various uh, development partners, um, looking at uh, how we can uh, uh, introduce more uh, solar power into uh, into some of these production processes in the CTG sector, um, implementing rainwater harvesting initiatives because water is also uh, something we haven't talked a lot about yet, but uh, but is a major challenge for the sector. Um, and then looking uh, looking on the uh, environmental side. Um, around how to uh, uh, how to how to drive zero waste initiatives, especially in milling, um, and uh, and implementing digital solutions. And I think this is this is a particularly important part of Trademark's work, right across the piece uh, across a number of sectors. But I think there there are real opportunities within CTG as well. And then lastly, um, it's going to be very important to uh, to make innovative finance uh, arrangements. Uh, available um, for particular in this sector to support GINs uh, to help farmers with mitigation adaptation to uh, to move, for example, to uh, uh, to climate uh, resilient seeds and so on. So <clears throat> we see real opportunities, um, but as as much of this this uh, um, 
this you could, you could call it forced adaptation comes down the tracks. We we really need to see investment from those who are um, imposing these standards in order to ensure that uh, um, that these nascent sectors in in Africa really succeed. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, David. Uh, I think that you have made a great work, actually, in setting up the, the, the challenges and, and the opportunities, clearly opportunities. I mean, in, in Africa, and you mentioned the case of, of Kenya, already a very green energy production. That is clearly a, a, a critical opportunity. But you're highlighting at the end the, the, the main message that is, of basically, that is necessary to get the investments in uh, uh, the continent, particularly from the countries that are imposing many of these measures. So I think yeah. that this is yeah. a, a very uh, uh, important message uh, to, to give. Uh, George, I mean, you are uh, sort of bringing now the, the view of the many of the companies actually that are sort of liable to comply with many of these measures. I mean, towards the end of the value chain, many corporations, I mean, based in, in the EU or in many of these countries, the sort of the, the obligation of these uh, measures are coming on, on, on them. Uh, and many of these companies, particularly for the control the value chain uh, uh, in general. So I think that they clearly it's, it's likely that they're going to have significant uh, 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 requirements on their suppliers, actually, based on this. Uh, what are your views in terms of how these measures in, in are, are influencing these specific sectors, in particular the textiles and value chain, and, and the implication for uh, developing country uh, suppliers? Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. So, um, as you say, we're often working with the lead firms um, within the value chain um, and sort of the different requirements that are being placed on them around the world. I think, you know, CSDDD has been mentioned a couple of times by colleagues, but I just wanted to give a bit more of a, a view of what companies are facing at the moment and, and what they're trying to do. And, you know, it is a large market, the textile and clothing sector, you know, annual sales of in the region of $650 billion a year, um, but also the scale of the problem is huge with over 92 million tons of waste apparel um, being generated every year, ending up in a multitude of places, whether that's landfill um, or uh, being transported to developing countries. So there are huge issues within the sector that, that are trying to be addressed. On, on, in terms of the supply chain, um, you know, the, the avalanche of regulation that companies are facing at the moment is actually quite extreme, um, whether that's CBAM, deforestation, supply chain due diligence in Germany and France, but potentially being extended out to the, the rest of the EU product-specific rules um, around life cycle requirements um, have also been mentioned, waste and recycling um, commitments and obligations being put onto companies, not often talked about, um, but, but really driving a lot of company behavior is around plastic packaging taxes and extended producer responsibility, particularly around that whole waste 
issue where companies in the UK and EU are now liable for the waste that they themselves are generating, um, and then the forced labor um, regulations that exist within the US that has been driving a huge amount of um, decision-making um, in the sector. And that's in addition to all the corporate reporting that, that we've mentioned. So how are companies actually structuring the the, the decision-making process around this? I think one of the big things that we're seeing within the market is the role of the procurement and supply chain teams within companies. Previously, their role was really around getting things from A to B as quickly and as cheaply as they possibly can. That was the mantra that was given from on high because that was what was driving the business decisions. Now, they are liable for compliance with across all of those different types of regulations that I'm mentioning. So that is driving a huge skill set change within the within the different industries. And I think that is also leading to better sourcing decisions where when you do have um, companies within the supply chain who are making investments to have green buildings, to have good labor practices, that that is then being supported by those procurement teams. Because at the end of the day, instead of their job, which was efficiency and is now compliance, that that's, you know, really helping them do their job. Um, but huge upskilling has been needed within the different um, companies in order to make that happen. There's also a huge issue around data. So all of the different supply chain regulations that I mentioned require some form of reporting, whether that's to a customs authority or, or other governmental agency to demonstrate compliance through an annual report or, or to accompany individual consignments. If the companies within the value chain are unable to provide that data, you then have a huge issue. So how do you transmit that data along the supply chain, I think, is one of the crucial questions that, that we're facing from an operational perspective um, across the industry. And that's also driving um, an increased use in technology because, you know, I don't want to say blockchain, um, but there are quite a few new, new tools being developed on the sustainability side and also around trade tech in order to make sure that the product, as it moves from the fiber, that's being grown, whether it's cotton or flax or whatever the case may be, right to the end consumer um, is able to be tracked and traced um, through that supply chain and ensure compliance with all of the different regulations. So that's something that companies are investing quite a large amount of money in at the moment in, in order to happen. An interesting um, development as well in the, in the textile and clothing sector is around resale and repair schemes. Um, these have been adopted by the majority of the large players. I mean, North Face and Patagonia are probably two of the, the famous examples, but even um, Primark in the UK and, and some other retailers have been adopting these schemes um, to, to mixed effect, I would say. Um, consumers still aren't that aware of them. Um, so there is increased effort around how do you move away from fast fashion to a more sustainable perspective um, and also increasing the repair of clothing and textiles, which you know extends the life cycle and reduces waste. The final question, and this is slightly uncomfortable because no one likes having it necessarily, is what to do about cost. All of this 
compliance through the supply chain, ensuring better labor practices, using renewable energy does have a cost implication on price per unit for the individual clothes. And, you know, how to ensure that, you know, it is being allocated fairly, um, whether that's, you know, suppliers making their own investments through to passing it on to the end consumer. Quite a complex discussion at the moment. And I think, you know, one that we will continue to see as all of these new regulations um, continue to develop. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, George, for presenting how basically these uh, uh, regulations are being affecting the, the industry, particularly on, on, on the end of the, of the uh, supply chain, I mean, particularly retailers. Uh, and this question that you put at the end about the cost is, is potentially a big one because that might potentially have significant implications of what happened with the whole value chain as well. So I think that this is, this is quite critical. So thank you very much for so far for keeping up to the time. That would be fantastic so far. Before opening to questions to the floor, I would like to make one question, the same question for the four speakers that is a bit of a challenging. I mean, considering that, well, we are in Geneva, we are hosted today by the WTO, I mean, it's coming, the uh, ministerial meeting in, in, in February in Abu Dhabi. Uh, what do you think that should be, if you think, you wish, you hope, or you don't think, what should be your reflections in terms of whether there's the need of some uh, multilateral discussions on these issues, uh, whether this is not the space, whether it is an opportunity that was already lost. So I would like to follow the order of the presentation, maybe to give your, your reflections uh, in, in, in one minute, please. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Max. So it's a um, tough question to, uh, to pose to us all, but I guess there's kind of two areas um, that I think it's important to have, the, you know, why the multilateral setting is so important. I think if we look at the momentum that we've seen over kind of recent years on in relation to trade and the environment, I think it's great, you know, that we have the now the structured discussions on trade, environment, sustainability and so on. But if you look at the membership, none of the countries that I've discussed this morning, Kenya, Vietnam and Bangladesh, are actually party um, to these these discussions, um, which of course is, is an issue, um, given that within those discussions there is a focus on the circular economy. Um, so textiles and clothing that does feature is featuring within the discussions at the current time. But obviously, you know, the group is missing, you know, some really big important players like Bangladesh. Um, so I think we need to reflect very carefully, you know, on the reasons for that. Um, so that would be kind of my, my main, one of my main points. And then, you know, if we look at the agenda, you know, of, of those discussions, there's, I can't see any direct reference there to aid for trade and the role of aid for trade. You know, although I know that some individual members of that group have made the point about the provision of aid for trade, it doesn't feature so prominently there. Um, so as we move ahead to the ministerial conference, you know, I personally would like to see, you know, the role of aid for trade more clearly linked, perhaps to the circular economy issue, but, but not only because it touches on all of the others that are issues that are being discussed within that forum. And I think that's really, really important because if we look at the actual numbers of aid for trade and um, 
the kind of shares of, of grant-based assistant go, assistance going to LDCs, you can see that it has declined um, over time. I don't want to quote too many numbers at you, but um, back in 2006, grant-based assistance comprised almost 70% of assistance to least developed countries. According to most recent data, it's just above 40%, and that was for 2019. So it may have gone down even further. So, you know, we're in a situation where we are seeing that decline um, in assistance, but at the same time, we're seeing these increased green trade measures coming into play. And I think that it is really important that we get those issues much higher up on the agenda. Thank you. Um, I would again uh, focus on the issue of finance because two issues. One is finance. The other issue is the harmonization of the standards and requirements because though uh, the Bangladeshi factory owners are adopting LEED certification, but LEED is not accepted by many buyers. For example, H&M uh, <clears throat> has their own standards or uh, own requirements for greening. So one doesn't really know which is uh, required by which buy brands and buyers. So harmonization is that discussion on harmonization of standards and requirement is very, very important here. The second issue, um, which I have mentioned earlier, the finance. So regarding the finance, um, there is obviously a need for a fund with flexibility, uh, low interest, and better accessibility. So the problem has been that <clears throat> when um, the factory owners, particularly the larger ones they go for, and the medium ones they go for bank loans, um, for renewable energy, for example, so the banks ask for 50% of the guarantee, but the owners, they already use, have used up the guarantee for other uh, purposes. So they are not, in, not able to take that loan because of this guarantee or collateral. So a third-party uh, guarantee is very important. So here, uh, the stakeholders, including the you know, brands and buyers, and of course, um, uh, the the other uh, donors can come forward. So this is important, and the other important sources, which has been mentioned by the uh, by Jody, regarding the aid for trade. Um, many countries, including Bangladesh, has not been able to take advantage of that. So I think that is another opportunity. And um, when you talk about multilateral collaboration, I think the importance of more funding is has been discussed. I mean, over the world now, G, in, in G20 meetings, also earlier in BRICS, all have emphasized on the um, adequacy of funds in the multilateral development organizations and banks. So more funds are required, and the other issue is that sharing the cost in ways, in for example, by higher prices. Thank you. Thank you. David? Great, many thanks. Thank you. George, please. Thank you. Um, taking a slightly similar point um, to David, but, but different on the, um, on the standards point, I think one of the things that we've seen, and, you know, deforestation is a good example of this, the EU, UK, and US, well, proposed US measures, there's about 80% overlap in terms of reporting requirements, but each 
is in a completely different format, requiring diff- different sets of data. So companies that are, you know, operating um, across those three jurisdictions are having to file three separate um, reports, all with the same public policy goal. And, you know, supply chain due diligence is another example of that and, you know, across the, the different types of regulation. So I think from a business perspective, what we would like to see happening here in Geneva is accepting the public policy objectives of those regulations, accepting that, you know, compliance, because that's what we have to do. But you know, there is a lot of harmonization and rationalization that could happen across the major um, players in this space that, that isn't happening at the moment because everyone is on a bit of a unilateral bent. Um, but it would be, you know, incredibly helpful in terms of rationalizing compliance, which would then also make it easier for developing country um, suppliers to, to comply with those regulations as well. Thank you very much. And I basically, I hear the issue of representation of countries, aid for trade, finance, more in general, uh, but also the aspects associated with harmonization and rationalization and avoiding the overlapping of requirements. I think that are very important points. Uh, I would like to open now the, f- the questions from the floor. I mean, I can take maybe three questions. So if please, you can make your question as very short um, and concrete as possible, please introduce yourself and, and please to who of the speakers you are uh, um, making the, the, the question. So, Michael Roberts, I'm uh, working in the development division at, uh, at WTO. Uh, congratulations on a really stimulating panel and excellent insights. Um, if you allow me, Max, I have a sort of a, a question slash comment to pretty much everyone up there, uh, very quickly. Um, one for Jody, um, in terms of the talking about those greenhouse gas emissions, how we, what's the endpoint of the, of the value chain? And how are we dealing with the issue of secondhand uh, and so in terms of circularity. One for Famida um, would be in terms of, is there, a, is there a perception within the ready-made garments sector in Bangladesh between different companies that this is actually a factor for competitiveness? And if so, then how would they view that? The, you know, the greening is a very big agenda, actually, and David was sort of pointing to this. You've got the idea of moving to renewable energy, maybe putting some sort of panels on, your, on the roof of your factory, trying to go for sort of trying to reduce the greenhouse gas um, footprint. But if you start, that's potentially a factor for long-term cost saving. But then if you think about the chemicals and sort of th- and the runoff and uh, the wastewater, maybe that's a little bit more kind of cost-heavy. The, when we're sort of grouping all these issues together, they're actually quite different in terms of their cost perspective, I think. Um, question for David. Um, the, and this is sort of going into a little bit what George was saying. If you look at, if you look at um, uh, the Kenyan economy, you're absolutely right to point out this figure that they have a very high percentage of their, of their electricity, which is coming from renewables. They've almost, you know, they're on track to decarbonize their grid. Compare that with perhaps um, some South Asian countries, that's a very different perspective. Now, if you look at regulations on an, on an economy-wide basis, instead of a specific value chain, you get to very different results. Um, so there is, in terms of that flexibility of thinking about how standards are applied, um, I don't know how that is necessary. Is that 
probably stinking pie in the sky. I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, and then George, yeah, which I think goes into George's point about, you know, you've got this massive regulation, um, which is um, which is which is which is coming at at, at uh, suppliers all at the same time. Um, yesterday there was a session on was it forging trade for a sustainable future. Now nobody sort of thought about well forging. You can think of actually there's another meaning of forging. It's illicit trade. Is this uh, a concern that uh, you see in terms of well the costs are just getting too high and uh, what we're likely to do with pushing so many things through the the you know on suppliers at the at the moment that this is a, a sort of a, in a sense a forger's charter um, and so those and just very finally one point there um, yes harmonisation of standards but let's not forget about equivalence. And that's one way of getting around this. And uh, so, yes, you can have your individual standards, you can have your unilateral standards, but get together and supply bodies and recognise everybody else's as broadly meeting what you want. And perhaps that's one way of getting around this issue of illicit trade. Thanks. I'm sorry for so many questions. Um, fantastic, Michael. Um, great, great panel. Um, and we've heard about these um, uh, trade measures that, that might be sort of kicking away the leather for the poorest countries. Um, but we also want to know more about the scaffolding building, um, building new scaffolding. What can lead to uh, a, a better scaffolding um, in individual countries globally? Um, and I think from Famida, um, I mean, there's also a nice leaflet here about your program of work on, on, on the textile and clothing sector. And you had this very nice chart um, uh, that scale seems to matter in, in adapting to the challenges because the biggest firms have, have been able to, uh, to uh, include a, a number of green, green trade measures. So is scale uh, the answer to adaptation? Uh, if so, what does that mean for, for other countries? But uh, is, is this a competitive advantage for Bangladesh because it has the scale, um, uh, particularly some larger firms, not other countries? S same question to Dave. Um, and I'm, I'm also looking at your, um, your new strategy. Uh, everybody should have a look at the uh, TMA strategy for 2023-2030. So your fifth point about greening trade, uh, which is really, um, really important, I think. So, uh, I mean, you've, you've been the, the sort of most successful aid to trade program. Uh, you've been able to convert a billion of dollars into really reduced trade costs uh, over the last decade or so. Uh, huge success. How can you use perhaps the next billion to really build new scaffolding? What, what are you learning? Are there any learnings already from your, from your green trade programs? You mentioned like eight points here. Are there any learnings there? And I think from, 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 um, from George, uh, what you're telling us is uh, companies need, 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 need to have a change skill set so they can, they can change. They need to be able to uh, produce the data. Um, are there any other, and consumer awareness needs to be created, are there any other things that you're learning? So what is it that companies can do and is there some public-private dialogue that, that could be enhanced here about how, how this, this can be enhanced? And that particularly could, could be the advantage of the poorest countries. So how, how can all the, these measures that are very difficult to put in place in, 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 in companies, particularly the poorest countries, how, how, can, how can that be enhanced? Thank you. Any other quick point, quick question? Uh, thank you. My name is Ante. I work with Trademark Africa as well. Uh, I had a question quickly for Jody, maybe. Um, so your title, uh, indeed quite uh, provocative, kicking away the ladder. We're, we're often confronted with 
that sentiment when you talk to African businesses or African uh, leaders. Um, this is all coming at us. Uh, um, what what would your response or what would you advise us to respond to African leaders? What do we say? Well, sorry, just adapt or die or, or can you kick back? Uh, are there negotiations possible? I mean, we're we're scratching our heads sometimes a, b a bit. Obviously, from a greening perspective, we all adhere to it. We, I mean, we've, we very much see the difficulties, but you also see that the, you, you can understand the sentiment of kicking away the ladder. So a bit of advice to us would actually be really helpful. Thank you. One final question, comment on... Yes, gentlemen. Uh, my question is to George. You spoke about a sustainable system and uh, the increasing the repair of of, uh, of clothes. Uh, what's your perspective on second-hand uh, tr uh, trade of uh, of clothes? And uh, given the fact that majority of African countries are reacting to these mostly their anticipatory bans. On the other hand, uh, quarter systems and here and there. So what, your, what is your perspective? Thank you. Right. Thank you. <clears throat> I would see how I'm going to organize this because I have multiple questions to, to each panelist. So uh, maybe I want to start with, with Jody. I think that we have a, a, a point about Kicking back on the on shaking the ladder or moving the ladder or trailer or whatever, I think that that's a very provocative question, and I would like whether you can potentially uh, uh, discuss something. Uh, but also, we have about uh, a point about the, the end point of the of the value chain. That was the, the point that uh, Michael was uh, uh, raising. So maybe if you can take those two questions quickly, please. Very, very challenging um, questions indeed. Um, so thanks for that. I think I'll take, Anthony, I think to take your question um, first. Still need to think about yours a bit more, Michael. But um, I think there's an opportunity here. You know, we've just recently had the Africa Climate Summit, um, and that's really, you know, brought to the province the fact that Africa does seek to become a new green industrial hub. You know, it was a very kind of optimistic um, statement, the Nairobi Declaration, which came out of the summit. So, you know, the fact that African leaders have, you know, put that out there, they've made a very strong focus on, you know, Africa being part of the solution. You know, I think that is, you know, that strategy, that declaration helps to build this momentum. But I think, you know, there's a need to build on that now and also consider an effective kind of engagement strategy at the WTO. And I think that applies to, you know, thinking about, you know, all of the great work that's ongoing at the moment, all of the advantages that David mentioned, you know, the role of the AFCFTA, but think about a strategy for engagement on that trade and climate nexus now at the WTO. Um, building on that Nairobi declaration, I think that is the, the, the way to go. Um, Michael, in terms of your question, I mean, it's a very, very tricky one, but yes, of course, the life cycle analysis, it does tend to stop, you know, it's about production and, and consumption, and so that is a, is, is a big issue. You know, if we think about 
um, the kind of how trade in, in waste products for textiles, you know, there's not even a classification for it um, in the um, HS um, system. Um, so it's very tricky in terms of traceability. Um, I think there's a mention about kind of illicit trade as, as, as well. Um, so how, how do we deal with that? You know, I think the fact that you know, the issues of the circular economy, they are being addressed in the TESSD, but there's still kind of lack of broad-based African participation. And it would be great to see, you know, more African countries within that initiative, you know, really trying to um, strongly advocate for this, you know, Africa's position as, as a green industrial hub. Thank you. Thank you. No, I just... Uh, unless you, you want to, to comment on that. If no, not, I mean, I, I was specifically talking about the skills uh, point that, that uh, uh, Jack mentioned specifically, but I think also Michael uh, uh, wanted also to, to go to... Yeah. Right. Um, I think um, two questions are, in a way, um, connected. You're right that, Michael, that a lot of investment is required because it's not only about energy. I mean, energy efficiency <coughs> and then uh, transition to renewables, waste management, reduction of chemicals, water pollution, a lot of um, you know, investment. And what has happened that the larger ones um, have already adopted because, because of the fear of losing the market share. Uh, they have done it voluntarily, though they are seeing that it's coming. But, um, and they feel, many of them, we have spoken to them, they many feel that because of their measures, green measures, uh, they are able to hold on to the market share. Um, of course, it t takes a longer time to uh, come to a break-even point, and maybe almost everyone has been mentioning about the, you know, n about not getting the premium price. But the fact is that they are also at the same time um, greening and technological um, transformation are happening together. So technological adoption has really led to productivity improvement, and that has been the crucial factor for, you know, being competitive even after spending so much. And Dark York, yeah, skilling is one important skill uh, um, development, and the labor skills is important, and which is also related to technology and the scale of, you know, the investment. That's also very important because. Scale, um, those who have the scale, those who have the ability to invest in such a manner, they are the ones who are holding on to the market share. Now, the, the biggest worry is that what will happen to the medium and smaller size? Um, will they be evicted? Uh, so, as uh, you know, this is one, you know, the transformation, how it's going to take, um, that's something to um, you know, look for in the future. But Bangladesh is coping with that, at the challenges at this point in time. But those who have not, do not have that uh, sizes or scale, um, do, they do have to adopt. There is no option for that. But then again, technology and productivity increase um, will be one of the important factors to keep the market share. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, and David, uh, I have a point about a reflection specifically on, on, on Kenya in comparison with Southeast Asia and how sustainable is their energy production and how that could be a, a, an opportunity. But also I think Derek was also bringing the issue of the skills as well in, in, in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, Mike, if I understood you right, I'd, I, I, 
there, there, there's almost a, there's a shame in the structural in rigidity of of some of these uh, of some of these measures that Kenya should have a spectacular advantage having 85% renewable energy over others, and yet that is just seen as one small factor among a whole range of others. Um, you know, we'd love that to be different. In the in the absence of of, of uh, being able to to change that, I think that takes us to to Dirk's question around. What more can we do to demonstrate um, uh, uh, that uh, um, that Africa can provide, um, pi I would say, pioneering um, sustainable uh, options? And I think there's uh, you know there's a range of, of avenues that we're we're certainly exploring. One of them is around uh, decarbonising transport, and in particular um, moving from air freight to sea freight. Um, the, the technology is now there to, to make some of these major intermodal shifts that were inconceivable um, in the past. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a really exciting avenue going forward. Uh, renewable energy is obviously the other big one. Um, and then uh, um, how, we can, uh, how we can look at the adaptation piece as well and apply trade facilitation solutions to, uh, um, to many of the, uh, uh, the climate stresses and the adaptation challenges we've got. Um, both in the region and more widely. Um, he, you made a really interesting point on the Forges Charter. I know this was a question to George. If I could just um, uh, come in with, with one idea. Um, Trademark has been developing a trade logistics platform with uh, the IOTA Foundation in Germany using uh, open ledger technology, which uh, creates a level of non-falsifiability, uh, which will be particularly... We, we saw this in, in, in the context of of standard trade processes, but it can be applied very easily uh, to, uh, to verification in the context of, uh, of some of the measures we're talking about as well. And I think that, that this, this sort of technological innovation can be applied to solve some of these very real problems that we have um, and to do so relatively quickly as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and George, I have a <coughs> point about, <coughs> sorry, harmonization and equivalence that was written by Michael. Uh, but also uh, the gentleman then mentioned about talking about sustainable systems and particularly the trade in second-hand uh, goods. I mean, if you can give us your final reflection, sir. Thank you. Um, Michael, to, to your point around illicit trade, I think what we're seeing is a bifurcation of suppliers. Um, at the moment where some are looking to actively meet all of the requirements and, and they will, their main markets will continue to be the EU, US and, and the developed world. There are others who are making a decision that it's not worth exporting to those countries and, and serving other markets. So, so it is driving behavioral change for sure, not always positive. I think the trust but verify aspect is incredibly important, particularly for um, for multinational companies. I think the age of greenwashing is, is largely over, um, partly because the you know consumer sentiment is so against you um, if something comes to light that it's not worth your reputational damage that it causes, but also now the sort of corporate liability that is associated with these new regulations is quite severe um, in some cases, you know, up to 10% of annual turnover um, for breaches of, of some of the CSDDD. You know, we're talking big numbers, so it's not worth, you know, forging or, or conducting illicit trade. In terms of what can be done um, to build the scaffold, I think 
particularly those lead firms within the value chain, need to be working much more closely with their suppliers um, in order to meet the new um, regulations, to ensure that the data is being accurately passed along the value chain. There is a huge amount that can be done there, and, and I think it's also an opportunity for public-private partnership to drive the, that sort of collaboration and, and bring up the supplier base in order to make sure that they're providing what, what needs to be provided. Um, on the question of secondhand clothes, I think in the abstract, if we are to have a circular economy, then we do need to have trade in, in secondhand clothes that can't just stay within the market if, if we're to be efficient. However, what we have seen is that it's essentially an excuse to dump textile waste. And in that case, that is extremely challenging um, for, for those countries where it's happened and it's you know, completely understandable why there are bans. So I think if, if we eventually reach a circular economy, then it can restart. But right now, as an excuse of textile waste, it's, it's yeah, it, it's a huge problem. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I think this is all the time we have. Uh, I would like to, to invite you to please check the work that ODI is doing on, on trade and climate, specifically on the SEED and Nexus program, also on the work that uh, our supported investment and trade in Africa program is doing, that we are working with TMA also in supporting uh, the negotiations and the implementation of the AFC FTA. So, again, uh, thank you very much to the panelists for your uh, wisdom and knowledge. And thank you all for coming and for your wonderful questions. And I hope that you have a very nice uh, rest of the day and of the public forum. Thank you very much.